From the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, this is Road to Resilience, a podcast about facing adversity. I'm John Earl. My guest today is Dr. George Bonanno. He's a professor of clinical psychology at Columbia University's Teachers College. Dr. Bonanno has been studying trauma, bereavement, and resilience for decades, and he's reached a surprising conclusion. Resilience, he says, is common. It's how most people respond to challenging experiences. In our conversation, we talk about that and mental flexibility, which in a new book titled The End of Trauma, he argues ties all the resilience factors together. So here's Dr. George Bonanno. Enjoy. Dr. Bonanno, welcome to Road to Resilience. Thank you, John. Happy to be here. So I want to start out with a bit about your background. I know you've been working on resilience and grief and bereavement for many years. How did you get interested in this subject? Um, well, that's a, a wonderful question. I actually love answering this question. It was completely an accident. I had been doing a lot of experimental work as a, as a doctoral student. And I, at the end of that tenure as a, when a doctoral student, I felt like I was getting lost in the experimental design. And I was you know, I'm a trained clinical psychologist. And I was getting too far away from what I um, really wanted to do. So I decided to do a postdoctoral fellowship with a very famous trauma researcher, Marty Horowitz, out in San Francisco. But he wanted me to, to head a project not about trauma, but about bereavement. And we right away began to study get, get large groups of people right after a loss and follow them over time, which was a novel approach in those days. Most of it was sort of clinically focused on people who couldn't recover from their losses. So we really just got kind of everybody and we followed them over time, and we used experimental techniques. We, we studied facial expressions. We used psychophysiology. And almost immediately, we began to see a great deal of resilience. And we didn't use the word yet because it wasn't used then. But we began to see um, that many people, although they, they, were, they were upset when they talked about the loss, they were basically functioning well and able to move on with their lives. And I did that for a number of years, and then gradually I began to get interested in trauma more broadly. And I was in New York by this time at Columbia. I had moved to Columbia University, and this was right around, I guess it was 1999. And, you know, early in my career, then 9-11 happened. Correct me if I'm wrong, but one of your main conclusions in your work in general, in the 9-11 work, and again in the new book, is that resilience is common. Yes, absolutely. It's not some special quality that superhumans have that we all should be looking to this select few that are resilient. It's not like that at all. You're exactly right, John. That I, and I, I don't know exactly why that was kind of hidden from view, you know, we, but we began to simply follow people, you know, over time. And we always saw this, that large numbers of people, usually the majority, actually almost always the majority of people exposed to all kinds of aversive events. We've looked at some pretty nasty events. And almost always the majority show pretty much stable mental health. You know, everybody gets a little bit upset. In fact, people can be quite a bit upset for a, a week or two after an event. That's quite natural. But then they kind of, you know, it, 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 it passes and they continue to function the way, you know, often the way they had before. You know, they, they're able to work, they're able to concentrate, they're able to be loving with the people in their lives, all those things that we consider mental health. And we've now done, gosh, I don't know, recently we did a review of 54 different studies 
doing the same kind of approach we use. And we found that it's around two thirds. So in other words, two thirds of people who go through a potentially traumatic event, they may experience post-traumatic stress for a period of days or weeks, but then they return to something that's more or less their normal functioning state. Yes. I can't emphasize enough how much this flies in the face of the popular conception of trauma and PTSD. There's an assumption that people who go through things like 9-11, oh, they're just going to be like messed up forever, you know? Yeah. So this was really surprising to me. Yeah. And I, I think I've thought about this a lot, um, you know, because early in my career, people didn't refute what I said as much as just ignore it, you know? And then gradually it began, the idea is kind of now catchy. It's like, you know, moving like a, you know, with considerable progress through the field and people are, you know, and I think sometimes people now say these things without even knowing where it came from. It's becoming a common idea. But I think where, why, why we're so slow to accept this idea, there are a couple of good reasons. I think, first of all, a lot of the literature on potentially traumatic events and bereavement as well also came from the clinical world, people who were studying their patients or, you know, studying clinical patients. So they were basically looking at people who were not getting over the event. And many mental health professionals, those are, who, those are the people they see when there's a, a traumatic event or a potential traumatic event. They don't see resilient people because people who have, are resilient afterwards because they have no reason to talk with them. So they develop a very, very human bias to assume that traumatic events cause, you know, chronic problems. This then, you know, is, is also magnified by the media um, not by any, you know, nothing is evil here. It's just simply because it's more attention getting to talk about the adverse consequences. But I think also in the general public, we want short memes now. Memes are everywhere. You know, we want short, simple things we can hold on to. And the idea that traumatic events or potential traumatic events are harmful is the meme, you know. And, you know, there are probably even more reasons, but I think that's slowly changing. You know, but still, I have I have sometimes had people come up to me after a talk and, and say, I'm sorry, but you are just wrong. You know, I don't care what your your little studies say. You are, in, you know, I, I don't get offended by this. I did a little bit at first, but I, I just say, well, okay, whatever, you know. <laughs> yeah. I think it's it's important to say that, so you mentioned the, the two-thirds who after days or weeks bounce back to something like normal there's another trajectory that's more gradual where people take a little bit longer to bounce back. Yes. And then there's the third trajectory, which is the, the chronic, the post-traumatic stress disorder trajectory. Yes. And I just want to just say that there is incredible resilience in each of these. So when we're referring to resilience and a resilient person, um, that's in strictly in the confines of this conversation, that's the two thirds that bounce back. Yeah. Um, and and relatively John, I should, quickly. Have, I should have clarified that. So there's a lot of confusion. There's probably even more confusion about the word resilience. And I think it's, it's related to the sort of confusion about trauma and PTSD because, um, I don't know, from a philosophical viewpoint, we essential, we've essentialized these things. These events are, are not normal events. They are special events, and they cause PTSD, and it's there whether we are aware of it or not. That's essentialism. Um, but... The idea then that people are resilient would have only could only be defined in the same way as essentialist. It's in the person, and actually, it's I have to force myself not to speak that way because it's so common. But resilience is not in the person. Resilience is an outcome, 
and people are resilient to an event. So that's the way I use it. Now, people may recover, and people do recover. That's a different kind of process, and it's, it's, we can call that resilience. I mean, I, I prefer to call it recovery because it's more accurate, you know, and that's, in fact, what we call it in the research to distinguish it. That's not to say they're not, you know, they've worked hard and they've done this, they, they've gotten over this thing. They certainly have worked hard to do that. But, you know, I think just, you know, in terms of being specific, resilience in my mind is that outcome. We can only be resilient to something. So when when an event happens, we're resilient to it. That's the outcome that we're talking about. Yeah, at least that's how I'm using it. You brought up 9-11 a bit earlier. This episode will be coming out right around the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Yes. And it's a great example of the misconception, the idea. There was an assumption in the immediate aftermath that there would be a huge wave yeah, of huge, yeah. people needing mental health services and just this overwhelming wave. And that didn't turn out to be the case. Yeah. To your point. I think, I think, and that's a perfect example that we still need to relearn because it happens almost every time we have a, a mass a disaster event. When we are in the throes of what, what I'm calling traumatic stress, the first few days or, or a couple of weeks, anytime in that initial period after there is a potentially traumatic event, and a disaster is even more. Uh, dramatic because it influences many people who are then looking and talking to each other. When we feel that way, it's hard not to believe that it won't last forever. It won't last a long time. And because we've been so focused on PTSD in our minds, in our culture, you know, trauma, when we're having nightmares, when we're thinking about the event having intrusive the images or memories pop into our minds and ghastly image suddenly pops in our mind and we try to push it away. When we're feeling on edge for more than a day or two, you know, we're on edge for 10 days, say, that makes us think or assume that we are traumatized and this will become PTSD. But in fact, those reactions are perfectly natural. That's our stress system dealing with what we've experienced. And we can look at those things a little bit more closely you know, intrusive thoughts popping into our mind is actually a very adaptive way to learn from the event. And you think of it when we were, you know, we, of course, the car, course, across the course of human evolution, this was hugely adaptive because we learn. We think, you know, what happened and what can I do to prevent that from happening again or make sure it doesn't happen again. So after 9-11, to get back to your question, you know, there were all many, many people were confused and upset and having images and having nightmares in New York, for sure. And in fact, after 9-11, there was a great deal of there was a marked increase in anxiety and distress and some PTSD symptoms in many people, particularly in New York, but also across the country. And then to everybody's surprise, within a few months, probably within a month, but nobody had measured it, it pretty much disappeared. You know, people still talked about 9-11. People still felt a little anxious about it. But most people were functioning normally. And that is very much documented after 9-11. The, the same thing is happening in the COVID crisis. There was a marked increase in distress and anxiety symptoms. And, and many you know, newspapers carried many reports, mental health experts saying, we are in for a mental health crisis of unprecedented proportions. There will be mass suicide. There will be... PTSD everywhere, there'd be anxiety everywhere. And that hasn't happened. 
I want to move to another misconception that you have tackled. And it's the idea that we know where resilience comes from, that we know how to cultivate it. I think in the popular imagination, there are, I'll say countless articles about how to cultivate resilience. Yeah. And they go through the mindsets and the habits and yeah. all the different things that are associated perhaps with resilience in research, perhaps associated simply in our imagination with resilience that seem like yeah. they're resilient-y. Yeah. But you identify something that you call the resilience paradox, which is that these things are mostly, well, I'll have you explain it, but these things are mostly weakly correlated with resilience. And in fact, they don't add up to resilience. We can't look at a person and assess their, let's say, optimism or how much they meditate, any of these things, and predict yeah. whether or not they will be resilient after an event. You're exactly right. Do you? It's very common to see in the you know in the newspapers and even in in some scholarly work the the magic traits of resilience, the five or seven traits. And when we think about resilience that way, then we can easily assume we just have to bolster those traits, and then people will be more resilient. And it's enormously popular. And I I'm I'm I, I'm a little bit chagrined to say this. It's also highly marketable. And many, I think, a number of people are marketing themselves to corporations and other other entities that can pay for it. Um, and this is, I'm sorry if this is cynical, and I don't mean to sound so critical, but um, people are doing this, and they're they're basically resilience experts who will then teach people how to be resilient. And I've I've rallied against this for a number of years, and because, as you say, the, this phenomenon I've called the resilience paradox. Um, and the, the idea of the paradox is just this, as you mentioned, John, that we know we can identify who's resilient afterwards, after an event. We can identify factors that are correlated with it, but each one of those things individually explains only a tiny bit. If we think of resilience as a pie, there are tiny little slices of pie. And, I, you know, I've puzzled over the years. Well, then how is this possible? And then I began to realize I'd been doing an independent line of work uh, uh, on flexibility. And I, I'm almost embarrassed to say this, that I didn't see the connection for a long time. And then it dawned on me what flexibility is about what I've been studying is how people deal with an immediate situation. You know, we broke it down into different pieces, like the, the way people assess what's happening to them, the kind of behaviors that they have at their disposal, and their ability to um, to update or to modify what's happening. If it's not working, they can try something else. And that idea really is about taking the problem at hand and, you know, trying to get through it and then taking the next problem at hand and the next. And it, it's based on the idea, I realize I'm, I'm mentioning a number of different ideas at once, but it's based on the simple fact that no matter what behavior we have, be it optimism or, you know, problem solving ability or you know, talking to other people or, de or seeking support from your friends, none of those behaviors, none of those traits of behaviors are ever always effective. And this is true anywhere in nature, that everything has costs and benefits. Everything works sometimes and not other times. And sometimes it's even um, harmful. So a great, a great example is what, what emotion researchers call reappraisal. When, it, when an event happens, you rethink, you reframe it in another way, and that helps us deal with it. And that's probably the most popular emotion regulation strategy out there. Most people consider it kind of the best strategy. 
But there's now research showing that in some situations, reappraisal doesn't work very well. And in some situations, it actually makes people worse because they, instead of reappraising the meaning, they should have just changed the situation and they would be okay depending on the situation. Another one is mindfulness. We tend to think of mindfulness as a kind of a panacea. You know, and to full disclosure, I practice mindfulness and I, I like it. It's very helpful. But it's a tool like anything else. Sorry to Buddhists out there who think that mindfulness is, and I, I know there are many who think that mindfulness is part of a, a philosophy of life, which I believe it is. But there isn't much data linking mindfulness to resilience. As much as we think mindfulness makes people resilient, there is really hardly any data. And resilience, again, in the way I'm thinking of it. Um, and there are there's plenty of reason, there are plenty of arguments, and there's some data to suggest that mindfulness can be maladaptive in certain situations, particularly when we're highly distressed. If mindfulness can actually make people worse sometimes in those situations, because we focus internally, and we may actually become more focused on what's going on inside us, and it may be disturbing. So you know, regardless of the factor, there's always a cost to it. There were two examples that struck me from the book um, when you're writing about a young man named Jed who yes. has been through a very difficult experience. One was distraction and one was social support. And this is to your point that even these these tools, resilience tools that are generally thought of as, you know, good or good in the case of social support, bad in the case of distraction. I think, you know, I certainly think of distraction. I'm like, well, the person is avoiding the experience. They're avoiding dealing yeah. with it. That's bad. But in fact, you're saying that can be one of the tools that's appropriate at a certain time in a certain place for someone with a certain experience. These are all what we have as a toolkit, right? There's no yes. single yeah. prescription to resilience that applies to everybody at every time. Yes, absolutely. And, and basically anything we might use all the time would be maladaptive. But we can use any mechanism, any behavior, any trait, like social support, any quality or resource we have or ability like distraction, in some situations we can use it. Mm -hmm. And something that's good, like, like social support, is not always useful. And right. you know, there's, there are many reasons for that, yeah. There's the, well, the part in the book when he, he isolates, he decides to, you know, yes. be in, in less contact with his, you know, outer circle or even his, his close friends and, and really reduce it to his, his closest inner circle. And that's what he needs at that period of time. Yes, Yes, absolutely. And in the, in the, in an earlier book about bereavement, um, the other side of sadness, I had coined the term. Actually, in in some scientific articles before that, I coined the term "coping ugly," and I mentioned that as well in the new book. What I mean by "coping ugly" is we might even use behaviors that we don't even imagine they're adaptive, like things that really are like not so healthy. But in one situation, even at, even for you know, an evening, like getting drunk, you know, or something like that. And there are many examples of people doing this. Was just I just had to completely just, you know, get out and be with friends and get drunk. And even though the next day they're feeling not so good, but it was a way to kind of kickstart something else, you know. And, and people have told me about these things over the years, you know, that they in that moment, it's useful. It's not useful to be drunk, you know, for the next two months, you know, after an event. But, and so, it, I mean, it really is, again, because we have to just deal with what's happening to us at that moment. What do I need to do right now? And that moment could stretch on for a while, but what do I need to do right now to get through this? And that's, the, that's what we need to do. We don't have, you know, there is no prescription 
that we just look into. And you mentioned that um, that we choose from what we're able to do, and that's what I call the repertoire component of flexibility. The, and that's something we can actually do. We can actually build. We can build ourselves a broader repertoire. Um, you know, we can try new things. And you know, it's ideal. Ideally, we would do that before something happens. You know, but um, it's harder to do it then. But you know, it's re- it's very hard to try new things and develop new skills and behaviors when we're really stressed. But you know, that's really part of the process. Ever thought about enrolling in a clinical trial? The Mount Sinai Health System has over 800 active clinical trials, each geared toward developing new medicines and treatments. Visit mountsinai.org slash clinical-trials to see if you're eligible. Mount Sinai, we find a way. You break up flexibility into two parts. First, there's the mindset, and then there's the sequence. Yeah. So let's start with the mindset. Can you take us through what the flexibility yeah. mindset so is? The, the mindset is part of, part of my effort to come to terms with these these small little tiny effects of the resilience paradox. And there are actually three components I defined of the mindset, optimism, confidence in our ability to cope, and the sense of, of challenge. We think, okay, what, whatever's happening to me, I see it as a challenge, right? And those three things, and there may be others, but these seem to be the most well-researched. And these three components, optimism, confidence in our ability to cope, and the sense of focusing on things as a challenge have all been empirically linked to resilient outcomes. They all are highly related to each other. And again, the the relationships are very small. But what they do is they don't make a person resilient. What they do is kind of get a person focused on the task at hand. And when when we're focused on the task at hand, then we say, okay, what do I need to do here? You know, we don't say, I'm resilient or I'm not resilient, you know, or this is horrible and I'm never going to get through this. We instead we say, all right, it'll, this, uh, there is, things will be better in the future. I'm, I have some skills at coping with things. And let's look at the problem. What is it that I need to do here? And those three things together kind of have a little synergy about them. They feed off each other. There's some research, of course, showing this as well. And they, as I like to use the term, they get us into the game. They get us focused on it. Yeah, it's the thing that powers the resilience. It powers someone it drives to go it, through yeah. Yeah. what we'll talk about in a moment, which is the sequence, which is this sort of trial yeah. and error of you know trying out some of the tools that people are familiar with, many of these yeah. that are in the, you yeah. know, the popular mind. Yeah. So yeah. what's the sequence all about? How would well, somebody move through that? Yeah, just to, to um, add one more point to, to what you just said about driving the, 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 the rest of it. I mean, traumatic, potentially traumatic events, you know, highly aversive events, scary events, medical procedures that are frightening to us, all of those things, you know, put us into kind of a state of being uneasy and we don't want to think about it. And, you know, it's much easier to say, you know, I'm, I'm traumatized, like, this is horrible. Or, but this, the, the mindset gets us to think about it in a constructive way. And it, that's, we're a little resistant to that. It's not easy to do that. But that once we do that, then it, we, we can engage with the flexibility sequence, which is the second part that you mentioned. So, I mean, the flexibility sequence, I've been studying this for about um, off and on in different ways for about 15 years. And the three components are first we call the first component context sensitivity. We have to look at what's happening to us, the context around us. What is happening? We can ask ourselves these questions. What's happening? What do I need to do here? You know, what am I feeling? 
And when we answer those questions, it's often not so difficult when we actually think about it. Then we get a sense of actually what do we need to do here for this particular problem at this moment in time? Not the whole game, not the whole broad picture, but this particular moment. Something is happening to me right now. I'm, I'm having nightmares or I can't stop thinking about this event or I'm feeling like I want to hide from other people or I'm, you know, I'm really worried about myself. Whatever the problem may be, we, we can focus on that problem. But once we kind of identify the problem, we get a sense of what I need to do. I need to find a way to distract myself, or I need to find a way to um, maybe I shouldn't be around other people. I need to kind of work that into my life somehow and find a way to make that so it's not, you know, confusing for other people. Or I need to, I need to look at what these intrusive thoughts are, or, you know, et cetera. Um, or, you know, the nightmares, maybe I need to, you know, accept that these nightmares are going to happen or somebody can make, make sure I'm safe, and I, you know, whatever the problem might be. And then once we understand that, then we shift into the second part. So we first look at what's, what, what do I need to do, then we shift into the second part, which I call repertoire, which is really what am I able to do? Okay, I know kind of what the problem is, but what are the tools at my disposal? This is the repertoire component we just talked about a minute ago. What are the tools I have? What, what can I do? What's at my disposal? Other people, you know, my wife, my, my friend, my partner, my good friends, my parents, my children, whatever we have, you know, my, you know, uh, I can, you know whatever it might be, my, the abilities that I have, I can do this. And we, we then kind of try something. We kind of come up with a plan. I'll do this. And then we, we kind of slide naturally in the third part, which I call feedback responsiveness. It's a little technical sounding, but what that really means is we're really just checking what's happening. Is it, is it working? Is this helping us? You know, is it really like sort of addressing this problem that's happening to us right now? And if it isn't, then we kind of, you know, slide backwards and say, okay, let's try something else that might work. And we, we explore this, you know, what is it that will work for what will help me right here? And we, you know, we, we, that kind of runs its course. Sometimes we repeat it a few times. It runs its course. And, you know, that isn't the whole picture. We're not done yet. But then typically we move on to something else. What else is happening to me? And typically these kind of highly aversive events, they're not stagnant. They change over time. You know, so new or different things can, we're confronted with. And then we simply, again, you know, ask ourselves, well, what's happening now? Am I okay? Is there something bothering me? Is there something that is, you know, not right? And then again, you know, what, what, are, what tools do I have at my disposal to address that? And then try again, is it working, you know? And what I, what I find is actually, I didn't mention this in the book, and I'm regretting that, is that what I, what's so important about this approach, whether it be flexibility or some other approach that's similar to it, is that it shifts our, us and the mindset as well shifts us from this the whole picture, which can be very disturbing. Maybe I'm traumatized. Oh, this is really bad. I feel terrible. Or maybe, you know, I have a health problem now and, you know, I don't know. How am I going to live my life? Or, you know, any of these kind of things that happen to us. It shifts us from that broad picture, which we sometimes need to think about, of course. But it shifts us more to what is happening to me right now. And that's surprisingly uh, this may, may, be, may be really shocking to some people. It's surprisingly uplifting. It gives us a sense that, okay, I can do this. You know, I got it. I can do this. And then we shift to the next thing. And, okay, I can do this too. You know, it, it takes us away from this big scary thing that's happening to us and instead allows us to say, well, if I can manage this, maybe I can manage this as well. 
and I have some control over what's happening to me. Yeah, I manage the last thing. I can figure this one out. It, exactly. As I'm listening yeah. to you, it strikes me it, it's like you. It turns it into a sort of engineering problem. It's like the mindset gives you the will to do the work, and then the sequence is sort of, oh well, this this is this very concrete problem. Again, we're not focusing on the the ten thousand foot problem. What's our problem right now? Yeah. Let's figure this out. What are the tools I have? Let's try this tool. Did it work? No. Let's try something else tomorrow. What's the next? What's the problem now? What are the tools I have? And going through that again and again, it takes that sort of, that it's a constant process. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. I, I don't, I, I haven't ever thought of it as an engineering problem, but uh, various people have suggested metaphors that are, I guess, very engineering oriented. Um, but I've never, I've never quite been able to find anything that, that fits quite so well. How can somebody prepare themselves for a potentially traumatic event? that will make it more likely that they will be resilient to it? Well, I've, I've tried to embrace that a little bit in the book. I don't normally do intervention work or you know this kind of work, but I think that we can think about these things in advance and we can just kind of assess them in our life, but we can also use them for everyday problems. You know, there's no shortage of financial concerns or you know, um, other kinds of things that bother us. And we can begin to think about those everyday problems this way as a kind of a way to start using, if, if we're so inclined to use these, these ideas or these, um, these skills. So um, if we take the flexibility mindset, I think we can begin kind of by reviewing our life and thinking, well, you know, to, to cultivate, say, optimism, you know, the, the challenge, of, uh, challenge orientation, thinking about events as challenges, and a sense of confidence and coping. There's pretty good research that all three of these things can be enhanced. You know, there, there isn't an enormous amount of research, but they seem to be learnable. And, you know, there, there are people who have written about learned actors, and Martin, Martin, Martin um, uh, Seligman, the famous positive psychologist, has written about, I think he wrote a book called Learned Optimism. I haven't looked at it yet, but I think the idea is very appealing. And I think, we, you know, we go back to our life and think, I got through all these other things, you know, if we, you know, we obviously most people have. Um, so, you know, things kind of happen to us and then it's okay afterwards. So that gives, you know, can kind of help us be more optimistic that we'll be able to deal with other things. We can evaluate what we're able to do, you know, we, which is also both gives us confidence and it's also the repertoire component. What, what actually can I do? What have actually have I done in the past? Are there things I could try that I haven't tried? maybe enhance those skills, you know, before anything happens by simply thinking about it and maybe trying some new things. You know, what if I, instead of getting angry on the phone with the, the person who wasn't helping me, maybe I can try being nice to that person and see what happens or being pleasant, you know, just see what happens, you know. Um, and then, of course, the, the feedback component, the monitoring what we try. We, most people are also pretty good at that. We've, again, shown that in research. Um, and we don't pay attention to it. We just sort of do it. But we can begin to pay attention to it and say, okay, well, did that actually work? You know, and we, you know, we mentally learn from that. This was wonderful. George, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Sure. Absolutely. My pleasure. Dr. George Bonanno is a professor of clinical psychology at Columbia University's Teachers College. His new book is The End of Trauma. That's all for this episode of Road to Resilience. The podcast is a production of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's made by me, John Earl, Nikki Cheatham, Emma Stoneham, and our executive producer, Lucia Lee. From all of us here, as always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.